We're thankful, God, for the psalm. It reminds us, Lord, to worship and follow you, uh, to be with you as best we can, God, by your providence and your mercy. And always, Lord, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are with us and strengthening us, God, we who trust and follow you. This morning, God Almighty, we ask for your blessings upon us as you promised in your word through the mercies of Christ Jesus, Lord, and not because of how good or perfect we are, for we still fail and fall short, God, for we are sinners, God, yet saved by grace. We ask, Lord, for continued growth in sanctification, and we say and pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading of Psalm 45 inside the bulletin, at least most of it. Psalm 45, as insert, it's on the flip side of the prayers. Let us read it responsively, or in music theory they call it call and response. I will read the bold face. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the people fall under you. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And it continues to unpack that theme there. Uh, here I want to highlight verses 6 and 7, a famous part of this psalm. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your righteousness, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. You have here a glimpse of the Trinity in the Old Testament. 
talking to God, then he talks about another God. What's going on here? Isn't this a good Jew? It is. He believes in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the blessed three in one. Let us pray. We who are your people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we who are called by your name, we who are in the footsteps of the early church in the Old Testament God and New Testament era and the expansion of knowledge and of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thankful God that we are here this morning, here on Resurrection Sunday, which is every Sunday, thankful God for your grace and mercy in our lives to draw us unto you, to cause us to approach unto you, as we read in the call to worship this morning, because of your spirit within us, Lord, we are compelled with a sweet compulsion to honor and worship you at home as well as publicly and out in the open this morning. Thankful and grateful, God, that we can and have the freedom to do this when many of our brothers and sisters across this world have no such freedom and are living in fear and worry. Gracious God, your love for your people, wherever we may be across this world, is great indeed, and your glorious power and wisdom is manifest in the creation around us. From the amazing animals that we learn and see and are all around us, to the beautiful trees and foliage, and the wonderful weather and the landscapes, God, around us that you have molded as clay in your hands, God, for your glory and for our good, that we may be drawn unto you, and sweet adoration, God, and thankfulness. We're grateful, God, for the many blessings you've bestowed upon us, for you are a bountiful God. Nevertheless, we who are sinners, God, we who are your people, who struggle with violations of your law and thought, and word, and in deed, we know we cannot make excuses and should not make excuses. Help us, God, as perhaps at times we struggle with gratefulness, we struggle with laziness. We struggle with other violations, Lord, of your law, whatever that may be, God. May we acknowledge such sins. May we acknowledge such transgressions. And ask for your forgiveness as you've promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we, God, be encouraged by the gospel promise, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. And this is the promise, Lord, given to all those who Repent with their hearts and not just with their lips. And Lord, seek out and desire greater obedience to you, Lord, and always strive and struggle to cling to you by faith alone in Christ alone. We ask God for wisdom for our denomination, for our presbyteries, regional churches of our denomination, and for the local churches, God, with respect to foreign missions, with respect to spreading the gospel to the four corners of the earth outside of America, which is our home base, as it were, that you would help them, Lord, to understand the, the signs and the times in which they find themselves in, the seasons, Lord, and the difficulties involved in raising up local leadership in various places such as Haiti and in Africa, God, and in Asia, Japan, Lord, as we have missionaries there as well. We're grateful, Lord, that we have such a reach, even though we are a small and humble denomination. Nevertheless, God, we do require wisdom, wisdom for our committees, uh, for the allotment of abilities, for the allotment of monies and opportunities, give them insight to know who's best for what situation, circumstances, God, and give us access to godly men who stand firm upon your word, evangelists and missionaries, Lord, who will not 
water down the truth of your word. And may you be with their families, Lord, for our missionaries out in the field right now in the difficult times they may find themselves in. Uh, Certainly, Lord, as much as they train to learn the language, to learn the culture and the expectations of ways of thinking and different prioritizations of even the things that we agree upon, Lord, in practice and in beliefs, it's still very hard and difficult for we're not born and raised in such a way of living in those cultures. So God, help them find and raise up godly men to lead as ruling elders, to lead as pastors, to assist the people of God as deacons, and to establish good churches and, uh, Lord, presbyteries and the national church if possible. And so God Almighty, a special, our Holy Spirit of truth, your special providence, we pray for our efforts in foreign missionary work. We also ask and thank you, Lord, for our work conditions here, that we have employment, that we have jobs, that can put food on the table. This is from your hand, Lord, and thankful, God, that you've given us the ability and opportunity uh, to work with our hands as you've called us in your word. We pray, God, and ask for those who are especially dealing with difficult work situations, difficult working hours. You cannot come to worship you on your Lord's Day, God, because more and more companies over uh, the last generation have been indifferent toward religious freedom on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, because profit is more important in this nation. And so, God Almighty, help them and help all of us, Lord, who need better employment, better income, better working conditions, whatever it may be, Lord, that we would get such. Give us wisdom, Lord, if it involves... Leaving the job, changing positions within the job, Lord. These are hard decisions to make in in light of our limited understanding of what's the best situation sometimes, God. There seems so many options. Sometimes there's very few options. We don't like our options, and yet we must make the decision nevertheless. Help us to that end, we pray, that we would persevere and do what we are called. And even if we're not always clear, Lord, to always trust and rest upon you, God, that you will cover any of our sins that we have unintentionally made in such decisions. We thank thankful, God, for our health situation, for our bodies, that you have preserved us, that you helped those with surgery, you helped those who were uh, struggling with uh, different ailments or even COVID over the last month or so, God, that they are better, and that all of us in general have good health, Lord, that we can t- maintain that good health and have access to uh, the means to a better health, Lord, both with food and exercise and doctors and supplements and whatever else, God, and that we continue to do these things, Lord, not because... Uh, we wish to be eternally young, although we do in some sense, and we long for heaven, which we'll have a new body that will last forever and ever, God. Uh, but because we are called to take care of our body, Lord, in accordance to the commandment to not murder, it also implies we are supposed to take the means, causes, and occasions to preserve life. And so, Lord, help us to that end to the extent that we can with our bodies, and to be thankful for what we do have, Lord and to use our healthy bodies for your glorious namesake, to help one another, to encourage one another, to support those, especially in financial and material need, God, and physical needs, and to assist them, to pray for them, and to encourage them, we pray. We ask for your name to be glorified through our life, Lord, and our growth and sanctification. On this, your Lord's day, to cast aside all cares and distractions, and to focus upon you and your great loving kindness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. May these tithes and offerings, God Almighty, be an expression of our love for you, a part of the whole Lord of all life. May they be used wisely and mightily for the work of the kingdom and help those in need in our church and elsewhere. For your glorious name's sake we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let's go ahead and sing hymn 405, 405. seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is in a green insert in the hymnal, the Psalter hymnal. A very brief summary of important doctrines. The Apostles' Creed has been around, uh, at least variations we found in uh, archaeology, I think in the mid-200s. As I recall, let us say together as a summary of our belief, I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's after Hebrews, at the end of the Bible. And we're at the end of the book. Which I hope was helpful and edifying as being relevant because it talks about persecution and suffering for doing the right thing and our duties and responsibilities in society and in our family and work and businesses. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So, uh, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to you, and all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. In these closing words, God Almighty, uh, your spirit has so guided uh, the writing of Apostle Peter, to give a salutation, a greeting, and a blessing, Lord, as we read here, the blessing of peace upon all those who are in Christ Jesus. May this encourage us, Lord, and remind us of the importance of a Christian greeting, uh, which is unique insofar as it involves the love of the saints, always in the context of those who are believers in Christ. Our Lord and Savior, help us to remember this and to continue to live in accordance to the truth and principles, God, of a Christian greeting to one another and our love for the brothers and saints and sisters of the Lord. Amen. The saints of God show love in various and sundry ways, as we know. Often we think of showing love and honor to one another as feeding or giving of money, of time and effort and prayer for those in need in the church of Jesus Christ. All that is certainly true. Yet showing love can be as simple as offering a greeting, a Christian greeting. And the Apostle Peter does just that here. He offers greetings from the Babylonian Christians, as well as Mark, the author of the book of Mark. And then he tells them to greet one another and wishes the blessing of peace upon them all. These verses focus upon God's people, Peter cares about them, and in caring, he shows love and consideration through the simple act of greeting. If you look more carefully in this text, so hopefully it will encourage us to continue that same idea. Although greeting is a particular application, the idea, the principle of that greeting is love and consideration and honor of the saints, for we are all in Christ Jesus. The first point, standing in grace, verse 12 Standing in grace, uh, Silvanius, he's a faithful brother brother of the church of God. He worked with Barnabas, he was chosen by Paul in a second missionary journey. He's a preacher, apparently, alongside others. We read in 2 Corinthians 1.19, Corinthians 1.19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. 
Yes, and amen in Christ Jesus. And so there he is alongside the pastor Timothy, in which we have two letters by Paul written to. Nothing written to Silvanus, and yet here he is. He's mentioned a number of times in Acts in particular, and he's also known as Silas. So if you have your concordance, you know, collection of Bible words, and look up the cross-reference there, you look up um, Silas as well, and that will be Silvanus. It's another name, a short, shortened version of that name. And we can also compare him and how he was involved in the Jerusalem letter to the churches. He's involved here in this letter, perhaps helping him uh, compile it together on parchment and whatnot, uh, certainly to deliver it. We read in Acts 15.22, Acts 15.22, of the Jerusalem Council, right? Uh, The General Assembly of the Church of God, in which all the leadership of the church gathered together in the city various parts and places, even as far as Antioch, to deal with matters related to the church and the transformation in the New Testament era. And they're going to gather and make a decision about the Mosaic Law, about the Gentiles in the church, and all that relationship that we preach through and we know about, and deliver that decision to the people of God, to the church. In verse 22 we read, Then it pleased the apostles and elders, the leaders in the church, with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now he's with Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. We read, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. So he gets around, <laughs> and he's often with Paul, but here he's with Peter, interestingly enough. We have similar greeting in Second um, Thessalonians as well. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father. Now, he delivers the letter, apparently, which is an important and dangerous task back then. Don't forget, Paul and his travels uh, through Asia Minor, or what is today known as Turkey, he writes in Corinthians about the dangers therein of you know, robbers and thieves and whatnot uh, back then. They didn't have the kind of uh, system that we have of travel. There's no mail system per se. You have to hire somebody and the like, unless you're a rich guy and you can have armed guards to protect your Letters, uh, this could be a dangerous job for uh, Silvanus. Now, he speaks of him, our faithful brother, as I consider him. So he's with Peter here, apparently in Babylon, as we read in verse 13. Um, exhorting and testifying, he says, that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Standing in grace, he's emphasizing here. And he's exhorted, and he has testified, which is the work of the ministry, to exhort, to come alongside, or to be an advocate. It's a particular word here, sometimes used of the Holy Spirit, who is our advocate. Christ speaks of him in the gospel. It's the same word here. To testify, you may remember this word. It's where we get the word martyr, right out of the Greek. Not that you must die to testify for God, although you may. But, and of course, that's the, the, cul- the culmination of testimony often has been people died, historically, Christians have. But the root word here is just simply to be a witness. We are all witnesses, not just Peter and Silvanus, not just pastors, 
all who have been born again, all who repent of their sins and trust and follow Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, are witnesses of the grace of God in our lives. That He forgives sinners. He covers our iniquities through the blood of Christ Jesus. Now, Peter and Silvanus bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ by their own life. And Peter, of course, was an eyewitness with Jesus in spite of his sins and his quick mouth, as we know his story. And I pray you never become a martyr, but you are always witnesses of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, of the Bible, by your words and by your actions, at work, in your neighborhood, walking down the street, at the mall, it doesn't matter. If people find out you're a Christian, they will watch and they will pay attention. And you may have an opportunity to speak the truth. Now he speaks here, interestingly enough, that he exhorts and testifies that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The true grace of God, emphasizing the genuineness of God's mercy. A mercy that he's highlighting based upon the long-suffering of God, not upon anything that we have done. Obviously, Peter's book is based upon grace, which is unmerited favor. The favor of God that we do not deserve. A large chunk of it is, of course, about what? You don't read the word grace very often, that word in Peter. What you read and what we went through is large sections, large chunks of our duty and a responsibility in society, at work, and at home, and amongst the saints, don't you? Indeed we do. But that doesn't preclude grace being behind all of that, that our duties do not undermine the mercies of God. In fact, we have our duties that are given to us through the Lord's grace. Grace to obey and mercy to persevere in spite of persecutions and troubles and heartaches that he talks about as well. That we who are in the Lord Jesus Christ have our duties, may have various and sundry sufferings and difficulties in life, doing those duties, obeying God, loving the brothers and sisters of the Lord. And yet grace is always in the midst of that for Christians. Do not forget that. Standing is what he's emphasizing here, that this true grace of God in which you stand. I'm writing this epistle. I'm exhorting to you. I've written it briefly to explain these to you. It's a statement of fact. You stand upon truth. You stand upon mercy given to you by God above. The standing here, Silas himself, or Silvanus, is an example of standing in grace, of being firm and rooted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting and believing him and nothing else and no one else. Acts 16, we read, But at midnight, Paul and Silas, there we are again, were praying and singing hymns to God. Where? We all know where. In prison. In those filthy pits of prison back then. We think it's bad today. Much worse back then. And here they are, singing to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. He was prepared. And he was standing upon the grace as Paul was. Established and firm in the faith, even in the midst of persecution. They were doing nothing wrong. And here they are, thrown into prison. For speaking the truth. Standing firm in their trust in Jesus Christ in his word. And singing and praying before God in the midst of persecution. 
That's evidence of grace working, of God's love and his power through us. And even though we don't always have amazing stories like Silvanus or Paul or Peter, nevertheless, we are here this morning. You are there throughout the week, as I know, and you are taking care of the home, taking care of your family, working on your job. That too is unto the Lord. And that's evidence of God's grace in you. If you have not forsaken him, you pray to him throughout the week as opportunity arises, you admit of your sins, and you strive and struggle to do your duties as Peter encouraged them in the midst of persecution and being an outcast religion, right? They weren't officially recognized as an acceptable religion. There was no freedom of religion baked into some constitution in the Roman Empire as we have in America. But they had to be officially recognized, and they were not at the time. And they were left out in the wind. For a while, they were part of Judaism. People accepted them as that. But as we know, by the end of Acts, they were kicked out, and the Jews hated them all the more, and Rome wanted nothing to do with them either. And so God was with them. God preserved them. God preserves us. We are blessed to be able to follow him and stand in grace in which we stand, the true grace of God, and not our own efforts to obey enough to get to heaven, to be sincere enough to get to heaven, to come to church enough. We want to do these things. We want to be sincere, and we are sincere. We want to go to church. We want to read his word. We want to obey. But the standing upon God and his presence is by his mercy and grace only that we are able to stand. We follow him, and we are here this morning, brothers and sisters, because of God's everlasting love and grace. The second point, the greeting from Babylon, verses 13 to 14, the greeting from Babylon, not just standing in grace, and why we can stand in grace, and exhorting us, as pastors do, that uh, you continue and are able to stand in grace. We read in verse 13, a more proper greeting. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, Babylon here, apparently a lot of commentators uh, think it's a metaphor for Rome, thinking and alluding to Revelation 17 and 18. So that depends on your understanding of the book of Revelation, which is a whole other ball of wax. Uh, I think we can all admit that Christians have a lot of disagreements, and yet it's still there, and it's God's holy word. But it seems to me that I don't see why we could just simply say he's in Babylon, right? which is in modern-day Iraq. Peter's later ministry is unknown to us, but Babylon makes sense given the geographical movement of his ministry. Peter initially ministered in and around Jerusalem, as we read in Acts uh, 1 and following, I think up to verse chapter 12. Next, he's at the Syrian Antioch uh, church in Galatians 2.11, and maybe for a short while at Corinth. So he ministered in the northwest and Asia Minor, as we read here in 1 Peter 1.1, where he writes a letter, Babylon, to these churches there in Asia, Asia Minor or Turkey, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, suggesting, of course, he had a ministry amongst them. They know who he is, and he's encouraging and exhorting them. And so now here he is in Babylon. Peter, who initially resisted preaching to Gentiles, to non-Jews, as we recall in Acts, is now fully involved and all over the Middle East here preaching and being with them and bringing them to the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Mark also 
uh, greets them as well. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, perhaps getting more data for his book that he puts together. It's a punchy book. It's shorter of all the Gospels. That is the four, first four books of the New Testament. And uh, covers a lot of ground in a short period of time. A lot of action verbs, as it were, explaining and going through the ministry of Christ Jesus. They give a greeting. They show love through the pen of Peter. And they are elect together, we read. She who is in Babylon, that is the church of God, elect together with you. Again, Peter takes the grace and sovereignty of God as central and important. Election is the tool of God's eternal grace, and whom he chooses from eternity past shall be saved. Anything else means God is dependent upon us. That is something that he saw in us, perhaps, down the quarters of time, as some people taught and teach. But rather... Election, just the word itself, tells you all you need to know. God is the elector, and we are being elected upon. <laughs> it's an action verb of God's action and God's choice. Mercy from first to last, and not because of who we think we are or what we think is fair. Left to our own devices, as we know, we would reject Christ and God's love. We are not. In fact, the elect here are all over the world, he says. She was in Babylon elect together with you, implying an election all over. Everywhere a Christian is, there are the elect of God, the chosen of our Lord and Savior and Father above. Not just Jerusalem, but Babylon. And not just Babylon and Jerusalem, but Turkey and Greece. And then Europe, as we know, and Africa and Asia and the entire world as this day. We have Christian churches and brothers and sisters everywhere. And they are too elect and called by our Father above. It's part of the basis of our unity before the world. We are called out together. It's given to our families and our household of God that the world may know and see our love for each other. We are elect and called, and we, therefore, have a basis for greeting and salutations. It helps if we have a common heritage. So we give greetings to other parts of America. We have a lot in common with them. That's fine. But being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, as we know, is above and beyond what it means to be a member of this world. Wherever Christians are, whatever ethnicity they are, it matters not insofar as we are all before Jesus Christ, saved and covered by his blood. And they give a greeting. The greeting is given not to just anybody, but to the saints of God, a greeting to you, and by Mark, and to each other. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Even today, this is done in some parts of the Mediterranean uh, region. Uh, Italy and Greece come to mind. Greetings that were common, of course, to society back then. And greeting of any type is common across all societies of all ages and all times. You don't need a Bible to know that there's a thing called greeting, and it's Usually a pretty good idea to have some kind of a greeting to either strangers and especially to friends and those close to us. And as we know, there is no 11th commandment to greet somebody. Thou shalt greet. So where does it come from? Well, I think you already know where I'm going to go with this. It's a means, cause, or occasion of the fulfillment of the command to love one another, which in this particular case would be based upon the 5th commandment, the relations that we have in the church of God. It's as simple as that. Again, it's natural law. We don't have to be a Christian to know greeting something that's helpful. And even significant at times, it can smooth the waters over. 
Or it can make things worse if you give the Quran kind of greeting sometimes. And so the greeting has, therefore, a function to display love and consideration to the person you are meeting. Greetings smooth over problems at times. And greetings reinforce or maintain cordial relationships. And that's how God designed it. And of course, of all the greetings, the greetings of the saints of Jesus Christ should be most dear indeed as it is here. We read in Matthew Henry's commentary, All the churches of Jesus Christ ought to have a most affectionate concern one for another. They should love and pray for one another and be as helpful one to another as they possibly can. Because although, yes, we should do good works to all men, but especially what? The household of faith, Galatians 6.10. And so that's true also with greetings. You should be courteous to all kinds of people. But what? Especially the household of faith. Because we are united in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so it's here that we are urged when he says to greet one another with an affectionate greeting. The form changes by culture. We already showed that it's a means, cause, and occasion. And so kissing, therefore, is not necessarily commanded per se, but he's expressing what they understood, just like they would say, give your cloak to another. We don't have to start wearing cloaks now to give a cloak to another person. Because <laughs> it's a means, cause, and occasion in that, in that particular case. Now, Peter does not give greetings to Jews or strangers, although he may have and probably has at certain times and places. But here, the special greeting is for the followers of Christ Jesus. We have a special relationship with one another, whether we are in Jerusalem, Antioch, Babylon, Paris, London, or Denver. It's a special greeting that implies the priority of the church over the world. Yes, we preach to the unbeliever. We warn the unbeliever. We are courteous to the unbeliever and even kind. Nevertheless, the greater proportion of our efforts and our abilities are geared towards what? Our family and our churches. Because we can't be everywhere at once. We can't do everything at once. We must prioritize. The Bible's made it very clear. The church is the priority in our relationships, uh, short of one another and Jesus Christ, of course. And that proper relationship there means, in this case, the public greeting of one another the public acknowledgement of one another and the encouragement of one another and of an expression of love. A love that should have a meat to it and its greeting to some extent, certainly, especially over and against greeting of other people. It reminds us this greeting here, given to the churches and to one another, he says, greet one another, that we are separate from this world, brothers and sisters. We are separated from this world. We may not be separated physically. We live in the same neighborhood with unbelievers and the like. But we are separated. Do not forget that. That's part of our holy calling. And so the greetings that we give, as he gives here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and under the idea of grace and election, as we see here, is a special kind of greeting indeed. Because it reflects the special relationship we have with one another and with Jesus Christ. Peace to the Christian, verse 14, the last point. Not just standing in grace, not just greetings from Babylon, but peace to Christians, or a benediction of sorts. Peace to you all, and 
who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Again, Christians, greeting to one another here, a greeting of a blessing, always related to Christ and his mercies, either directly as in this greeting, or indirectly, implicitly to one another. We don't always have to use the word in Christ or grace all the time to know that's what's implied in the relationship that we have with one another. Peace here given as a benediction, a prayer by Peter upon his readers, a a prayer of blessing. Peace through Christ, not as the world gives, but as Christ gives. He doesn't specify this peace, but we know there's all kinds of peace offered and given to believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The peace of justification, that we are righteous in Christ Jesus before God's law court. The peace of sanctification, that we are growing in holiness and that the Spirit of God is within us, and we strive to follow Him and love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The peace of mind that Christ Jesus loves us with an eternal love, and it will never fade in spite of our sins. Whatever good peace that is, this is the peace that Peter wants upon all who are in Christ Jesus. And on the flip side, unfortunately, it reflects the opposite. that there is no peace in the world. Sure, they may have economic peace, they may have material ease, lack of war, things that we would want. I'm not saying it's wrong, but that's all they have. They still have a guilty conscience. They have no peace in their mind because they know their wretchedness. They know there is a God. They know judgment is coming. And so they're anxious and always concerned and worried about something. And often it's a misdirection of their true worry and concern, which is their soul on its way to hell. Those outside of Christ have no peace. Do not let the prosperity you see that they have, the nice housing, the smiling faces, distract you from that fact. That peace can only be found, this everlasting peace, a peace of mind, a peace of your conscience, the peace of being saved and delivered and brought to heaven is only in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and nowhere else. And even as we know, the peace that people have temporarily in this world, the peace of their body, it's not broken, it's whole and well. The peace of their economy, the peace of prosperity is from God's hand as well. And he gives it to them, as we know in Romans 2 and elsewhere. He gives them the rain and the sunshine that they may repent. The long-suffering of God is to draw them to repentance. And it's temporary those peace that they have, and not everlasting as it is in Christ Jesus. Churches should not give them, in other words, a false hope of peace. We can pray for the prosperity. We can pray for peace from, uh, from war and the like for our neighbors, and we do. That's true patriotism. You love your neighbor, you love your nation, and you pray for them, and you work for their good. But we should always be careful and clear in the church that we pray for their salvation, for the full peace of redemption. That's the true peace that they ought to have. We should not pretend that they are at peace with God or promise peace outside of repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For it's only in him. Peace to all who are in Christ and only in Christ. Amen. Peter says, writes, which means, so be it. May it be so. It's a solemn statement of faith and hope. It comes right out of the Old Testament Hebrew word, which sounds very much the same, although 
as Dr. Coppice likes to joke, if you can raise a dead Hebrew from the grave, you can know exactly what it sounds like. We don't really know how the words are pronounced back then. But we have, that's the equivalent word we have, amen, from the Hebrew. As one um, Bible dictionary, uh, concordance, excuse, or theological word book describes, it was a custom, the word amen, which passed over from the synagogues, right, the Jewish churches, to the Christian assemblies, that when he who had read or discoursed had offered up a solemn prayer to God, the others responded, amen, and thus made the substance of what was uttered their own. Amen, I agree, may it be so. Peter is given an amen of the peace. Perhaps more, but certainly the peace. Peace be to you who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. May it be so. May you have that peace and continued peace in Jesus Christ our Lord. The confidence of his salvation upon you. that He trusts, Peter does, that God and Christ will give us peace. And echoing Peter, our amen should be expression of faith and hope. Because that's what it is. May it be so. I believe it to be. And I hope it to be. The hope, of course, is future-oriented. I do not fully see the magnitude of peace that we have in our sanctification, for example. We still struggle with sin and go back and forth with guilty consciences at times. But it will come. That's the, the amen of hope, of looking to the future. There's also an amen of here and now, of faith that says, it is true. I do not feel at times to have peace, yet I truly have peace through Christ Jesus and his blood. That is, I have the forgiveness of sins and peace with the judge of the universe, no longer at war. It could be an amen of both, in both cases, future-looking and present-believing. It's true in both cases. May we continue, brothers and sisters, to love one another and show that love through Christian greetings, always in faith and hope of the mercies of our Christ, and always with a hearty amen. Let us pray. Spirit of truth and life, we're thankful for these closing greetings here. It gives us a number of things to chew upon and meditate upon and the importance of a Christian greeting and the importance of focusing properly, of course, upon the church of God and praying for good blessings and to greet one another. And Lord, above all, to have peace and to pray for peace for one another and to have a hearty amen, we pray. Let us rise and let us sing hymn 409, 409.
unity. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.